If you are approaching your middle years, maybe you're in your middle years or you're in denial about those middle years even happening, then this episode of the podcast is for you. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. Back in 2018, on episode 37 of this very podcast, I had the delight of sitting down with Lise Carlow and Sarah Wills, the media duo known as Those Two Girls. And a lot has happened since then. Their extraordinary friendship and chemistry landed the pair local and national radio shows with the hit network. Walking the line between smart and irreverent, they've interviewed household names from formidable politicians to global celebrities in front of audiences of thousands. In 2020, the year Lees and Sarah turned 40, they launched the podcast equivalent of a little black book for the middle years, 40. And four seasons in, following much success, 40 celebrates the life lessons and stories of popular and everyday women in their fifth decade. Past guests include Leanne Moriarty, Sarah Wilson, Sophie Monk, Mia Freeman, Michelle Laurie and Leah Purcell. It is an amazing podcast and we talk about in some ways it's a little bit like a PhD into what it's like in the middle years. In 2022 and after more than a year in the making, they published and have launched their first book, 40 Favours the Brave with Echo Publishing. In this conversation, we dive into some of the lessons that they've learnt from this immersion into the middle years. Everything from why Lees will never go camping again and what is it about cemeteries that Sarah loves. This is an immersive exploration and a celebration of 40 and the launch of their book, 40 Favours the Brave. And I promise you, you're going to want to grab a copy not only for you, but one for all of your friends after you hear this episode. So please soak up the sheer delight that is Lees and Sarah. Lees and Sarah, welcome. It's such a delight to be connecting with you again. It feels like a few things have happened between the last time we caught up. Yeah, a few things, but here we are, (laughs) 2.0. Let's do it. Good to be back. (laughs) Good to be back. Um, I almost feel like what's happened since we last talked is that you've started, I'm not sure you you're finished yet and you might not even be halfway through a PhD uh, to study and look at these these middle years. Um, what was it, what I'm interested in, in those last couple of years of your 30s, knowing that 40 was around the corner, what were some of the things that you were talking about? What were the conversations maybe you were having with each other? What were some of the um, things going through your mind around what 40 represented? Uh, what were those stories that were coming up for you then? I remember Lise was really scared about ageing out of work. So in because we'd only come into working in radio at the age of 36 when that started, which is old by... Entertainment space. industry. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I remember Lise being particularly concerned about have we missed our boat? We've got until 40 to really make a dent in what we're trying to do. And I would say that was a very valid feeling of yours back then, wasn't it? Definitely. And I think that probably stemmed from uh, previous careers I had in the fashion industry where it is all about youth and having that on your side and that's the only uh, measure of worth is how how young you are and how relevant you are. So 
that, yeah, definitely that was a big thing for me to overcome. And then I would add to that, Sarah, that in our late 30s, after we'd been in radio a couple of years and momentum had well and truly picked up for us in that space, we just got so busy because we were saying yes to everything. That scarcity mentality that I probably carried across to our duo uh, resulted in us saying yes to absolutely everything because, you know, you feel grateful, grateful, grateful for all these incredible opportunities and we were exhausted. That's just the truth of it. We were absolutely run down. We weren't you, happy in our in our work space at that time. But you were the one who said, we have to stop feeling grateful. We've <laughs> earned our stripes. God, I sound good when you, you got, say it back to me. Yeah, like it was all your fault, but then you figured it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, none of it was Lisa's fault. Sure, the fault. problem and the solution. <laughs> yeah, well, it. we were also just so excited. We took on so much and then you realise once you get to 40 and you're sort of having a little bird's eye view of what life is looking like that there are things that need to go the way of the dodo and, you know, that particular job was one thing. Um, we were also becoming increasingly aware of our faces changing, getting a few extra wrinkles that, you know, for the first time in your life, you really start to see your face and your skin and your parts of your body start to change. So we freaked out. We got a bit of Botox. Mm -hmm. Then we decided in our 40s, what are we doing that for? So we stopped that. Um, so yeah, it's certainly been a momentous shift in patterns on many levels over the past few years. So, yeah, I can hear that sense of, you know, there might be a career cliff that's coming at us. There's um, this, this you know, got to say yes to everything. I'm, I'm really interested and I had this conversation about being grateful only just this week that I'd, um, you know, I, I think particularly as women, it's almost one that we have more of, but you know, this chance of actually going, well, how can we kind of own the space? Um and shift away from just going, oh, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm just grateful to say, yes, I'll just do it all and 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 cost us at the end of the day. Um, where were some of the, I guess, costs that you were seeing? You talked about being tired. Oh. Were, there, were there other kind of... <laughs> How long do you want this podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. to be? <laughs> I think initially, obviously, anybody who, who's heard anything about breakfast radio hours we found them to be brutal. And when we first took on Breakfast Radio, our children were young enough where the hours worked for us, where we'd get up, we'd go to work, we'd come home and we'd still be there with the kids early in the morning and we could take them to school. And we convinced ourselves that that worked really well for our families. And then there came a point where it just didn't work anymore because we were zombies. And a lot of parents, women in particular listening, will know full well that if the, the the lead parent or the mother isn't functioning, not much else does. So, And the fact is it had been four years where we were getting up at either 2.30 or 3.30 in the morning and you just eventually that catches up with you. You look at anyone who's a shift worker and they tend to get, you know, three long shifts or night shifts on, then four days off to recover. We didn't... We didn't do that. And we would try and placate ourselves by saying, oh, my God, like we could be bakers. 
Bakers have mm-hmm. to get up at three o'clock in the morning and then they don't get to leave until midday. But we're home by this time with the kids, but it never actually switches off. And because Lise and I were always hustling and we get really excited working together and creating things together, it wasn't like we were ever just going home to sleep. And I think I would add to that a big epiphany that came, you just brought it up then, Sarah, with the whole baker anecdote. You know, we could be doing jobs that are so much harder. We should just be okay with this. You know, you talk. We could be a roofer in a hot Queensland summer. Like that's the kind of level of talking ourselves into the the job. The reality is then you approach 40 or or you hit 40 and you realise that comparing your struggles just actually doesn't resolve what's going on in your own life. It actually just makes you feel worse about everything. So it's just we got to a point it wasn't working anymore and we decided to make big changes. Yeah, when when the options are to go, well, at least I'm not a roofer in hot Queensland, you know, there, there might be a bit of a sign. That there's a few things. Well, I, I mean, Ali, we yeah. write about this in the book, but there came a point where we were offered a contract extension on the breakfast radio job that we were doing on the Gold Coast in addition to the national early breakfast show that we were still doing. And... <laughs> 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 we Tell me about been, the scene. We should I read have about been really scene. excited. We should have been because stability in this industry is very rare. And what happened was I was in tears in the five-star hotel that we were being put up at. Lee's was like slapping the pillow beside me and just yelling, we cannot keep doing this. I won't let this happen because at the same time, my husband works away a lot. I had nannies at home. I was calling in favours from people left, right and centre, which also leaves you in this constant state of feeling apologetic that in order to live your life or perform your job, you're calling in favours all the time. So there was a horrible level of guilt there. And um, I can't, God, I'm just taken right back into that moment. Mm. I can't even remember what my my point was. But that's kind of how how dire it was at the end. And and when we got when we said we wouldn't continue it, I mean, I just remember Lee's and I in the having the phone conversation um, with the network executive, and we were just playing footsies with each <laughs> other under the table. We were just so excited that it was coming to an end, and nobody could have. If you had told that to us five years earlier, we just would have thought, what are you talking about? You will always be excited for opportunities like that. But the thing with this decade is you you have permission to change what your dreams are, to change what you want to do. You don't have to be stuck in a job or a role or any kind of life position um, if you don't have to and there's a way out. I think the cost that you mentioned before, Ali, obviously fatigue, we've covered that, but also just the cost to our creativity and was huge. There was just no room for anything else other than the perfunctory get up and talk into a microphone for four hours. There was no room for us to to laugh about the idea of projects that we, because that's often our measuring stick, is what what are we really into? What's making us laugh or what's making us pay attention? And then we sort of follow that down the rabbit hole. And we just, that was gone. Do you know it was an older woman who actually gave us a bit of a kick up the bum? And I don't think she'll mind us saying this, but Robin Bailey, who is a very, very, very well-known breakfast radio presenter here in Brisbane, we'd had a coffee with her. And she had said, what are you girls doing now? She said, you used to do so much. You used to do all your events, all your MC work. Now it's just radio. 
And that was a bit of an aha moment for us, wasn't it? Because mm. all that stuff that we had previously absolutely loved working on together, as Lee said, there was nothing left for it. And so, you know, it was no surprise, I guess, when we left that breakfast radio role on the Gold Coast that all of a sudden we had this little spark of creativity left to think, hey, I think there's a podcast in perhaps turning 40 and the questions we have about this new life milestone and then things have steamrolled from there again. I love how you, um, in the book, you talk about the the podcast, and which is called 40, um, really was this this kind of almost selfish ruse to to want to chat to other women, to want to find out their stories. And it came from this really deep belief that by the time you hit 40, you've probably got a story to tell uh, and that every woman has a story to tell. Did you think there would be as many stories and as deep the stories that are um, – that you've been a part of and continue to hear through the podcast when you started? Or do you think, oh, we'll get five or six and, and they'll be great and, and then we'll see what's next? I think we were amazed at how willing our guests were able to be honest and very vulnerable with us. And so as soon as you hear women who are slightly older than you speaking very frankly about their experiences, whether it's with their hormones, their relationships, their children, their careers, it opens a door for A, people to listen and B, more people to want to come forward and tell their stories because no one story is the same either. And we've heard so many varieties or varied accounts, you know, from women who've suddenly lost their husband overnight to women who had a surprise baby, babies at 45 to, um, you know, becoming published authors at 50. Like there's just, there's a full gamut out there. And I think interestingly, we've had a number of guests reflect on the conversations they have with us and say, oh gosh, that felt like therapy. I don't think I've actually processed how I feel about my middle years because there aren't many platforms that focus on that part of it. You know, there's lots of podcasts about career or motherhood, but that little slice of, no, we want to know about what this decade means to you. I think that's a really important part of a woman's life in becoming that next version of yourself that just allows women to sort of reflect on their life so far and what the next chapter might bring. And also this generation of women in their fifth, maybe even sixth decade is so different from that of our mothers and grandmothers. So it really is from this current cohort that you can share similar experiences because it was a completely different kettle of fish for women who were 40 in the 70s, 80s. Yeah, absolutely. What expectations were, what was available, Mm -hmm. what career options were available, um, sense of connectivity. So, yeah, I think there's – it is that – and you're right, it's that opportunity to actually hear your own story uh, and to to make sense of it as you as you go through. Sarah, in the book, you share the experience about your beautiful mother-in-law, Anne, and this was a, an experience, a, a bit of a wake-up call for you mm. to kind of seize the day. What particular wake-up did you have by going through that experience? 
Well, my mother-in-law passed away from motor neurone disease when I was 39 and she was just the kindest, most congenial lady who had always put everyone first ahead of herself. And her husband was 12 years older than her. And when he passed away in his 80s, she was in her early 70s. And she, you know, despite obviously missing him, she thought this is my time to go on a cruise with my girlfriends, to travel to see grandchildren, to do those things in her life where she didn't have to put anyone else or didn't want to put anybody else ahead of her, I suppose. It was just her time. And she never got the chance to do that because then her own illness entered her life. And motor neurone disease is just the cruelest of cruel conditions because, uh, you know, it is, it is a death sentence essentially and it robs someone of their ability to to talk, to smile, to eventually, you know, walk and eat and uh, slowly, eventually, you know, breathe. Um, and I think that wake up for me was, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to get to the pointy end of my life and think that that's the only time, the only opening I have to possibly do the adventures that I have had on my own bucket list. Like the bucket list has got to start earlier in life and it's okay to put yourself to the front of the line sometimes. That's not actually selfish. You know, it can be if you're doing it <laughs> all the time, but there are instances when it's okay to say, hey, I, I actually want to do this and I don't need to ask permission or wait for somebody else to give me the okay. Yeah, there's not someone who's going to knock on your door saying, it's now your time. That's right. <laughs> that uh, that we can make the call. So the book is called 40 Favours the Brave, which I just love. And um, the way both of you kind of play with puns in everything you put out is just perfect. It is uh, absolutely delightful. The the topics that you cover off are things like womanhood, uh, work, keeping up appearances, relationships, but you also talk about epiphanies. And Lisa, I want to go to you around camping <laughs> um, and the decision that you have made, the declaration that you have made uh, through experiences and your epiphany um, around camping, but the broader, I guess, application of this permission to actually go, it's not my thing. I think, I mean, look, I, I, I write with humour in that piece because... Oh, it comes from a place of being <laughs> deadly serious uh, as well. But it is. It is very serious and it is a very real thing in my family. I have two boys and my husband and they are typical sort of outdoorsy, rough and ready boys. So camping is a big part of what they love to do and motorbike riding. And we're not talking glamping, you know, they want to go out motorbike riding for two to three days and pitch a tent or roll out a swag. Now, the way I was raised is families do everything together. That sort of what was bred into me, I suppose, that you sh a mother shows her love and her commitment to her family by plastering a smile on her face at all times and making everyone around her comfortable by doing everything that everyone around her wants her to do. 
And so I went camping with my family and I hated it. And I hated it every single time they convinced me that I should go camping. And then one day I just said, I don't see the whole, I don't see the point of this. Why would you want me to be there when I'm actually throwing the dynamics out? When it's the three of you, it's brilliant. You guys have a great time. So what is it about seeing your mother there that makes it any richer of an experience for you when I'm telling you I hate it, I have a horrible time, please let me stay at home. And I think, you know, we laughed about it and I just said, I just don't want to do this anymore. I would much rather wave you off, help you pack your bags and then hear all the glorious stories when you come back. I just refuse to do something that I hate that much ever again. So, you know, that's just the way I roll now. You know, I, don't, I just don't think that my love for them needs to be displayed in that manner. And um, I don't want them growing up thinking yeah. that that is an accurate representation of what a woman should do either. That's sort of where it came from. And, and the, the applications of that are wider in the sense that it's okay for me to say no to things when it comes to my family. As a whole, I, I am a very loving and giving wife and mother. I'm happy to make sacrifices. I mean, that's just part and parcel of being in a family group. You do make sacrifices, but not at the expense of everything. I've received two very angry phone calls from Lise <laughs> while she was camping. Um, I remember the first one was when you'd gone out to Warwick where Dane had taken, uh, that was a family item of motorbike riding and camping overnight. You were in an air mattress on freezing cold ground. And Lise, at that point, I think you and Dane hadn't been speaking for eight hours or you'd <laughs> refused to speak to him. And he, he had gone to the local survey to find a coffee to make amends. And the second time was when you were so angry because he didn't pack a cutting board. Oh, yeah, we had a big blow-up about that. I said, who goes camping without a cutting board? Because the mental load of that always, well, not always, usually, let's be honest, <laughs> falls to the woman to remember the creature comforts, to make it a more enjoyable, holistic experience for the entire family. And so I feel like that was your slow, I'm not doing this anymore, you do it, you do it, you do it. And yep. I mean, yep. hysterical I, from my perspective, <laughs> hysterical, because is, my favourite version of Lee's is when she's angry. It's even hysterical when the, my, my boys can see it. They end up laughing because they've never seen me that angry. And I was like, why do you need me to get to this <laughs> point? I can what I watch you do everything else in your lives. I don't need to sit here angrily watching you either. So let me stay at home. That's how it goes, Ali. I'm standing my ground unless it's in a bungalow I will never camp again. <laughs> Preferably an overwater bungalow. <laughs> like, you know, one of those amazing ones in Fiji or something. <laughs> Absolutely, Lise. Yes to the bungalows over the water in Fiji. And Lise, I love that. And you even wrap up that chapter with the realisation that by saying no, that I can be really present to the yeses. 40 and beyond, this middle age, and you kind of talk about in generations gone past, but if I think about the stereotype of middle age, it feels like it's it lives in cartoons and memes uh, that we are kind of, you know, it's getting older, it's finding that stray 
hair, it's finding <laughs> greys, those sorts of things, some of these kind of stereotypes. What have which of those stereotypes have shifted for you or changed um, off the back of having these conversations, whether it's through the podcast or whether through the process of writing the book? Uh, which of these would you kind of challenge? Oh, my God. All I mean, of stray them. hairs is definitely a thing. I wouldn't challenge that <laughs> at all. Um, I think that whole matronly trope of becoming invisible in – your 40s. I mean, my own mum had said that to me. From about 45, you start to, well, she did, she, her generation started to feel, you know, a bit in, bit invisible in society. But I don't know whether it's just because we're talking to so many women, but I don't think we've ever felt more, um, more like ourselves, more visible. And I'm not talking in a, um, you know, listenership sense or what have you, but n- none of that I find scary at all. I feel, I feel from doing writing the book and doing this work about the middle years, I've come to the understanding that all of it is a choice. What are you going to fall for? What trap are you going to let yourself accept to be true? I just think so many of the women we've interviewed, we've spoken to for the book, it really is what am I, who am I going to be? in this next part of my life. And I don't think you have to accept any of what's put out there trope-wise or what's out there in the media. As a whole, I think what's missing in the narrative around ageing for women is that you get really, really interesting and you get really, really powerful in this part of your life. I didn't understand that until talking to all the women we've spoken to. I think I was starting to worry about this relevancy issue or am I going to be cool anymore? Will anyone turn to me for fun or advice or or am I just going to fade into oblivion? I think all of it is rubbish and all of it hinges on who you hang out with, what you read, what you listen to and the life you build for yourself moving forward. And anything's an option. I think this is probably a nice um, segue into talking about appearance and uh, and we've, we've touched on it a little bit but there's a great quote um, that you have in there and I'm not sure who the quote comes from um, but it's the, the reason society tells women they get less beautiful as they age is because women get more powerful as they age and I think that, you know, talks to what you're, you're suggesting. Um, what, and I think you've touched on it, but what excites you about the way women talk about their appearance uh, or kind of this sense of wrinkles, there's been a kind of um, a growing trend to embrace the grey hairs, you know, which I get really excited about seeing those sort of things more. Um, what is, what from your conversations that you've had with with so many women when it comes to this kind of sense of appearance can often be associated with shame and, and need to kind of cover up. What what excites you about what could be different in the way that we tell these stories? I mean, I just go back to the massive moment Sarah and I had together, a shared realisation when we made the decision to stop dabbling in Botox we were both throwing these these words at one another, remember? We were mm. saying, you know, th- this whole when you go to get, if you've ever had Botox, they'll often use language like, 
I just want to freshen up. I just want to look a little bit more... Less tired. ...awake. Mm. And then we were saying to one another side by side in the car, saying, is that suggesting that women our age are becoming stale? If we're saying just freshen me up as if we're like a crusty loaf of bread. You know, there is nothing that is language that we fell for and that we panicked about when really is there a need to panic? So what if our lines are getting heavier in the glabella, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is this is bound to happen and it's all about choice and we have said many times we reserve the right to change our minds down the track because we are still young, 41, 42, we are still youthful looking. But I think it's this idea that this bubbling panic that arose in us that was really frightening and that you, you have to kind of talk yourself out of or at least well, listen it, to other yeah, stories. Yeah, because and we've, there's a great section in the book that I think Lise and I are both mm. very proud of called Mirror Mirror where we go out to, oh, I don't know how many women's voices are in their 40 maybe yeah. about how they feel when they look in the mirror now in their, in their 40s. And there is, as you would expect, a whole spectrum of answers from women who just say, I'm embracing it. I see my mother's face. I love it. To others saying, nope, I am, you know, throwing everything that I can at it. So, and I feel more a, confident. That's right. If that's I do right. That. So, yep. for respect to whatever women choose to do. For me personally, and I think I can lump Lee's in with this, when we were erasing our frown line between our eyebrows, what that then meant was, it drew attention to other areas on our face. Oh, okay, so I've got rid of that wrinkle, but oh, goodness, I've got these kind of, I think my, my lines, my, my puppet lines down beside my mouth, they're getting, a bit, they're getting a bit heavier. I might have to do something about that. And then you think, where does it stop? And I feel like there was so many hours and mm. days and weeks and months of my 20s and 30s combined where I was so focused on my appearance so focused, which means you're just always looking inward at yourself and worrying about what other people think of you and am I pretty enough? Am I youthful looking enough? Who's watching me? The fact is no one's watching you. No one cares. Everyone's too busy running their own race. And I think that is one of the greatest realisations we've had too, is that you have to start looking outward. And I think the other thing that was really huge was when we said to one another, okay, let's just let's just play the tape. What if we stop getting Botox? If we stop, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? What's the worst that can happen? That people look at us, we we walk into a party or a work function or what have you, and people say, they've aged. And what do we say? Yeah, yep. we have. Yep. That's 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 <laughs> how life goes. Yes, we are aging. What what can we possibly expect differently. That is a fact. It is true. And then this whole thing that we wrestle with as well, you know, when people say, oh, you look great for your age. We were like, do we, is that a, do we take it as a compliment? Do we wear that with pride or do we challenge that? And I don't, I still don't have an answer for that. I actually don't know how I feel about that to this day or what I would say in response. But I think all of those things were really helpful for you and I, Sarah, to go, okay, we're okay with this. At the moment, we don't need to do this anymore. Well, and it's really stopping and thinking nobody can weaponize your age against you if you choose to accept your age and appearance, I suppose. 
Because that is very much a thing where women's age is used as a, as a weapon. You're being over mm. the hill, mm-hmm. you know, you don't look as good as you used to. Oh, she's let herself go, hasn't she? Oh, shut up. <laughs> like, shut your face. Yeah, totally. We're, <laughs> we're angry. Who's that other quote by that's like, never mess with a woman over 40 because she's sick of everyone's shit and full of rage. And that's very true. And a true. little bit tired. And that's not in our book, but it should have been. Yeah. <laughs> book number two. Yeah. It's very short. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is this, this language and even that question of, you know, you're looking good for your age. I often think, yeah, if I was 90, I'd look amazing. But, yeah. you know, like. <laughs> I look incredible. I'm only 85. Like, but what, what, and then you go, well, what is age? What's the number? Uh, what does that actually mean? And probably almost come back to your, um, even those questions you're asking at, you know, in your late 30s around energy and focus and what do I want to be doing? Just this kind of sense of choice. And when we have that, that's, I, you know, I think there's nothing sexier than someone who is lit up by what they are doing and are all in doing that. And if that's a good sleep, great. If that's, a, you know, um, starting an empire, then that's amazing as well. Um, so really interesting conversations to kind of dive in. And um, I loved that chapter in the book around Mirror Mirror and would certainly encourage people to to make sure you read it because there is such this diverse and you'll see a sense of yourself in in some stories and um, and not in others and, and it's all, all okay. Well, we'll ask um, you, Ali, we'll flip it. How do you feel mm, when you look in the mirror? Again, I, I really am at this age and stage of combating because I have a 12-year-old daughter as well, so I see it for me. Um, and I think of the generations as well. So I am constantly on guard for those voices of there's another wrinkle, um, there's potentially a grey hair. I was getting my um, my you know scalp bleached and used to have to take antihistamine before doing that. And it wasn't until about 12 months into doing that that I went, oh, maybe that's not great for me <laughs> from a, you know, that's not good. Um, so these things that you you do for, for beauty and appearance. And so now I am, I'm learning to embrace what I see. The, the privilege of ageing is not something that is lost on me. Um, and, but it's hard. It's really hard because the judgments are there. Um, I had a photo shoot last week and, and when you talk about tyrants and angry, I went off at my husband because I had to be in the chair for an hour and a half doing hair and makeup. This is after getting my hair done, spray tan, nails done the day before. It had it'd been cancelled the week before and he rocked up with 10 minutes to go and it pissed me off. <laughs> so frustrating and he was he was in a shitty mood when he turned up because he didn't want to be there and I just went you have no right to be in a shitty mood <laughs> um, you will smile and suck it up this is the way it is um so yeah it's it's yeah it's a really good question but it's one that I stand stand on guard around in terms of standing in front of the mirror hmm. Sarah, one of the chapters is called Cemeteries. Oh, yeah. And it starts with, I love cemeteries. Mm. Please elaborate. Oh, I've loved cemeteries for as long as I can remember. Um, I think 
must have started as a kid when I was going to visit grandparents' graves and just wandering around and seeing the beautiful messages that people would write on the headstones of their dearly departed. And they, for me, just feel like a place of absolute peace and serenity and a goddamn smack in the face that you have one life to live and you're a long time six foot buried. So I have been very guilty of making my family pull over on road trips if we go past a really derelict looking old cemetery and get out of the car so I can wander around and and have a look at the graves. I have travelled overseas and made my husband go to, you know, there's this amazing cemetery on a hilltop in Nice. I've done a graveyard tour in Scotland. Um, I've even taken my kids to cemeteries as just outings and we'll go and fix flowers on, on graves. And sometimes we even would have lunch there. Um, my, my parents and husband weren't so fond of that one. They said, you're just a bit weird now. You've probably got to rein it in, but I just find them so, so comforting and peaceful to go there. I think there's this chance to kind of recognise again where our life fits in and what kind of happens. I'm not sure I'll be doing picnics there, but I love that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I acknowledge it is weird, but sometimes I just think, you know, when you're at those, I'll often go there if I'm just shitty at something, like if I'm frustrated, if I'm in a quandary and I don't know, you kind of leave a cemetery and think it doesn't really matter. That's actually not something I'll be thinking about in five years' time, even five days' time. So shake it off and move on. So that's what they offer It's a reset for, me. for yeah. you, mm. this sense of perspective. I love it. Mm. Lise, one of, the, one of the guests that you've had on the podcast, 40, um, who really resonated with your audience is Sally Hepworth, so an Australian author, um, an amazing author, and she shared her no list. What was it about that that resonated so strongly with so many people? I think it's going back to that theme of permission. I don't think it was the first time I'd ever heard a woman say no to the things that Sally Hepworth says no to. You know, we've been conditioned as women to put our hands up for so many things, whether it's school pickup, walking through the school gates, attending functions, all of those things. And Sally says no to all of them. And part of it was really confronting because I found myself, and we're friends with Sally, but in that moment I found a little bit of judgment creeping in and then I had to check that judgment or or, or sort of, inspected a little bit more closely because it's just a conditioning, a social conditioning. Why shouldn't Sally say no to uh, going on school grounds? I was actually wondering, I was like, how the hell do you get away with doing that? I know. But the other thing is you can't sell a secret. So if that's your intention, you've got to let everyone know that's not what you do. I think she also never hosts Christmas dinner. Yes. If that happens, it's catered. Everyone brings drinks. She has no mental load to do with those kind of things that more often than not fall on a woman's shoulders. And I think it's two things with Sally. It's She's obviously a woman who's really comfortable setting those boundaries. And also 
she her family setup is a creation of 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 her and her husband's like they are both complicit in building this family structure that works for both of them. So when I found that judgment creeping up, I could almost hear, you know, like those old naggy women of yesteryear going, oh, that poor man. <laughs> right? No, I'm just being honest. I'll, you know, but, but this is, you can hear those voices, right, of, oh, that poor, that poor man, she doesn't do the groceries. Sally says no to groceries, which I love. I love that. But automatically when I felt that coming up in me, I was appalled at myself and you've just got to break that down and that's what we love so much about her is that her family runs beautifully. Everyone is happy. Everyone knows their role and she challenged that in me and I think that's what's so brilliant to just be across all these different women's stories. And I think it resonated with women because they were equally shocked and excited at the prospect that we could do things differently. Shock horror. This sense of permission that it's okay yeah. that I can actually make my own based on, um, yeah, what's what's happening for me. One of the other chapters, um, Lee, stick, sticking with you, is a conversation you had with your seven-year-old son where you called him a sexist jerk. <laughs> which I love. I'm going to read the line that says the tyrant continues and this time I can feel the beginnings of my feminist flag flapping in my Bond's briefs, which is just brilliant. How important is it to start to call out these different perspectives and start to share them with our kids? It's certainly something I've started to be aware of. Um, But, yeah, how how have you found that? Oh, I think I've done it from the word go because the minute I found out my husband and I were expecting a boy, I felt out of my depth because I come from a family of girls. Uh, I went to a girls' school and I kind of thought that I wasn't cut out for it. And what what I can say now with total conviction is that I am really good at being a boy mum. And I just it's just part of our Every day, Ali, the way I speak to them about how I'm feeling, uh, what I expect of them, I often will, I would say daily, point out what their father does so that they get used to it. You know, when, and and Dane, my husband, is great. He's, um, we, he, he, he's a fireman, so he works four days on, four days off. So he's probably at home more than I am. And as a result, as my career has sort of gotten a little bit bigger, he's taken on more of that sort of traditional um, homemaker might not be the right word to describe Dane, but, you know, he's certainly uh, taken on that role, um, taken it on like a duck to water, really. So, you know, when Dane's unpacking dishwashers, putting loads of laundry on, it's I just make a point of not saying, see, see, see what he see what men can do, not that, but just involving them in that conversation and because I don't want to raise boys who are useless. I refuse to add <laughs> to the population of useless men. What's that term we found out the other day, Sarah? Weaponized incompetence. <laughs> Weaponized incompetence I cannot tolerate. So that's when, and I'm speaking specifically to men, you know, to, to gender issues here, but when men will say things to women like, 
you're so good at multitasking. I can't quite get this. Can you just take care of it? Or you're so much better at buying presents for the family than I am. And that's just a way for women to take it on for themselves and go, oh, okay, then I'll do it. And I refuse when my, and my boys have started doing it. Oh, mum, I can't make my bed as well as you can. Absolutely not. Get back in there. What do you think? Because I have a vagina that I was built to make beds better than you? Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. I can, I will not tolerate it. It makes me so angry. And then they always say, mum, like, you know, we know about women's issues. <laughs> They just, they just think, like, here she goes again. Um, but I just think absolutely start early for the mm. love of God. Don't start when they're teenage boys. That's too late then. No, I, th- I, I, I think it's necessary. It's my gift to women. I love it. Yeah, those yeah my women girl's going to be, be marrying her so. boy, so it's a win-win here. I'm doing my job early <laughs> That's for right. Sarah. That's right. <laughs> Sarah, to you on the flip side, being a mum of girls, uh, are there conversations that you have around kind of changing some of those, those expectations or the language that comes through in the way that we speak about roles? Yes, I mean, we've got a very different family set up as well where the majority of stuff does fall to me because my husband is a FIFO worker and is away so much that by default, the majority of life admin does fall to me. However, when he is home, he is very, very involved Mm -hmm. now. But don't get me wrong, there was a time when I was younger in our relationship where I just took on everything and wore that like a badge of honour until I got very, very, very resentful and uh, we had to change that dynamic because, you know, he would come home after working away. I would think, oh, God, it's my time to have a holiday. He would think, oh, God, it's my time to have a holiday from working. And then there is just this kind of friction of, no, 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 but I do this all the time. I do it all the time. And so we had to re-establish working balance as the kids got older because what you can do when the kids are little and they're at home all the time is one thing. But when they start going to school and they've got extracurricular things going on and both parents' workload has increased, then that whole – the power paradigms change all the time. And so I think um, my girls see that like – Lisa's talking about with Dane. I mean, Will, I mean, I can barely get clothes off my body before they're in the washing machine. Like he's just a fiend when it comes to the Simpson. Um, Loves it. He's hanging it out there. He'll cook dinner. He'll pick them up from school. But I mean, do I give him medals for that? No, because he's their father. And this isn't the 1980s where women were just expected to do everything. Like you, you pull your pants up and get on with it. And also, this is what I say to my boys, shame on you if you don't know how to work a washing machine. You're down in the shed fixing your motorbikes. You're telling me you can't come up here and press, turn a dial three ways. Are you joking? How embarrassing to be you. I use a lot of that in parenting. It's probably not great. (laughs) Yeah. But it's true. When you draw a parallel to something that they know and they are such capable human beings, you know, if you switch it that way and say, well, there is no reason you can't do this. This is yeah. just basic life stuff. 
But even that language, how we use, we, we've both done, both done it in the last 10 minutes. Like you've gone, Dane, he's great. He's great. He's so on top of those things. And hmm. I've done it with Wills. At no point are husbands being like, she's great. Like she is onto the beds. She is onto the dinner. <laughs> like that's such a gender bias that we have to spell out that we're with good men, men. good yes. men yes. who help around the house. Like that should just be the default. Yeah. I like to think that my husband says to people, she's good. She's, like, she's really good. She's, she's all over it. I like to, I think he does, Sarah. <laughs> For me, this has been around, obviously, permission, um, what's next, this celebration of uh, possibility and potential. I, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. If you think about the next 40 years, uh, so not just the 40 that's come, but the next 40 to be, what does it mean to live a standout life for the 40 years to come? Uh, Lise, I'll go to you first. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I, think, I think of legacy, I suppose. And I, for me, living a standout life is being able to look back and have people around you say she was just always exactly who she is and she followed the dreams she had and she gave everything a crack unapologetically and laughed along the way. I mean, for me, humour and laughter, if I don't have that in my day... That's my litmus test, I think, for where I'm sitting, if I'm doing something I love or if things are going the right way. If laughter's not there, that's something's awry for me. So for me, it would just be driven by the delights of ageing and then obviously watching your children come through and being able to have really rich conversations with them when they're older and then just, or, yeah, just laughing, laughing with Sarah. <laughs> yeah, standout life involves being Lisa's elderly companion in about 40 years. We have a long-term plan to um, have a joint Perfect. retirement village unit together and just watch bad daytime TV. Uh, Grant Daniel will still be on. Um, yes, so it'll just <laughs> make us feel like we're in our 40s again. Um, no, a standout life for me would be... I would say ditto to everything Lisa said there and also being considered a kind and thoughtful person in what I've attempted to do in my life. So that people feel like I've been able to not just look after them, but to look out for them. Beautiful. That, and I love that Grant Denny is still on TV. <laughs> Absolutely. Be I'll true. be just, the day, no, he, he needs to be on TV. I love Grant. He totally. <laughs> Life is better for all of us. The book is an absolute delight. I'm so excited that it's out in the world. I know it's going to hit um, a, a, a humour nerve and, uh, and a life lesson nerve for so many uh, that will pick up the book. Thank you for your time and uh, I've loved connecting again. Thanks, Thanks for Sally. having us, Ali. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.